This is the Trey Blocker Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today's special guest is Texas Representative Tracy King. Representative King represents District 80, which extends from west of San Antonio down to the Mexico border. He is currently the chairman of the very powerful Licensing and Administrative Procedures Committee. Mr. Chairman, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you much. I appreciate you inviting me, Trey. For sure. Thanks for coming. So you graduated from Carrizo Springs High School. Is that right? That is true. So tell everybody where Carrizo Springs is. Well, Carrizo Springs is 120 miles southwest of San Antonio in Demet County. It's right in the middle of the district that I represent now, which extends from Uvalde County, Garner State Park on the north, down to Falcon Lake, south of Laredo on the, on the south end of the district. And Carrizo Springs is right there in the middle. My family uh, had a ranch there. We actually lived in outside of a little town called Asherton, Texas. Mm -hmm. I went to school in Carrizo Springs. I started school in Carrizo Springs, and I finished school in Carrizo Springs. But in between my second grade year and my sophomore year, I lived lots of places. Did you get shipped off to boarding school or something? Well, it was threatened. <laughs> it was threatened a number of times. Threatened a number of times. Carrizo Springs is home, though. I mean, Redemick County, Texas is home. Asherton is home, but we went to school in Carrizo. It's a great community. So what was your graduating class? How big was that? 120. We were, actually, it was one of the bigger classes. There was yet another boom going on at the time. That was the Austin Chalk boom. So there was a lot of influx of kids in school, but that's a little bit larger than it, than it was historically, but it was 120. Right. So I guess all your teachers knew you, and it was hard to, hard to stay anonymous. Huh? Were, were you a troublemaker in school? No, no, no. I was one of them guys that made pretty good grades all the time. Wasn't a big athlete. I, I played baseball a lot and uh, played football one season and uh, decided that wasn't my deal. But uh, no, I made pretty good grades. I uh, wasn't really involved in student government. In those days, I was, uh, by default, was the Secretary Treasurer of the Library Club. <laughs> now, by default, what does that mean? That means nobody else ran. <laughs> and, and what did those duties include? I had to take minutes and keep up with the money for the Library Club, which was, as you can imagine, it, it wasn't the most exciting place. Millions of dollars in that fund, I suppose. No, no doubt there was at least $100. <laughs> and what were you supposed to do with these funds at the end of the day? We bought... Uh, uh, books for the library. We raised okay. money for, for gotcha. new library books. Gotcha. So w growing up in Carrizo Sp Springs down in South Texas now, how far is that from the Mexico border? We were about 50 miles from uh, Eagle Pass. And, okay. and back in those days, that was a real part of our life. We celebrated birthdays, anytime you had a nice dinner, New Year's Eve, any of that. We went to uh, Piedras Negras, which is across the, r the river from Eagle Pass, like there was no river. I mean, it was just right. right back and forth all the time. Right. Has that changed today? It's completely. For about 10, 15 years ago, you just you just don't go anymore. The locals go. The locals don't even go. So there's a few people, if they need a prescription medication, they may go over there in the middle of the day and then come back. But mm. uh, no. There's very little cross-border traffic like there used to be, tourism traffic. Right. Well, that's unfortunate. So what would you say were the major influences in your life growing up? 
Well, certainly the rural background. My grandfather was a rancher. My father was a retired school teacher and rancher. And um, that uh, my parents were divorced, but my mother was a nurse. That was a, a big influence on me. I was always interested in civics and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. My father and my grandfather were both very community oriented, very much into the church that we attended. So those were big influences on me. I have a small family. I just have one younger brother, uh, full brother. Right. So I guess if, you, if your parents and your grandfather were involved in a civic manner, did that plant the seeds that later bloomed for you into wanting to run for office? It did. It did. Let me say that I had a half-brother and I have a half-sister that I think the world of and then numerous step-brothers and sisters too. But um, it did. It did. In fact, um, I went to the American Legion Boys State my junior year in high school. Mm and to the Texas Farm Bureau Citizenship Seminar the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. And I won a seat in the legislature, in the mock legislature, mock state government that you set up in the American Legion Boy State. And those were big factors in my, in my life. And then I would have probably gotten a degree in, in political science or government or something like that if I could have made any money at it. <laughs> well, I, I did notice you got a degree from Texas A&M in agricultural engineering. Right. What did you intend to do with that? Ultimately? Well, of course, A&M is my father and my uncle and long family history okay. at A&M. I wanted to work for Halliburton. There was a boom going on. Right. And I went out there and I asked them who they were hiring and they said we're hiring ag engineers and petroleum engineers. The ag engineers, because they typically can work outdoors like there's field engineers and petroleum engineers for the obvious reasons. So since my family was involved in agriculture, I said, well, I get the ag engineering degree. And it was an accredited engineering degree, except, you know, instead of designing a, a building that houses humans, you might design a big building that houses thousands of pigs or chickens or something like that. Right. So I got the degree in ag engineering. I graduated in May of 83. And... Uh, went back to Carriza Springs and they were laying off everybody and literally putting the chain around the gate and closing mm. up the gates and and they said there ain't no jobs here largest engineering placement center in the world and you go in there and the board was just blank oh wow the only engineers that got jobs in 1983 when I graduated were those nerds that I don't know what they were thinking <laughs> they got a degree in electrical engineering but they got a specialty in computers oh wow huh who would have thought right who would have thought those guys did okay <laughs> but the rest of us all were unemployed and I I had friends that mowed yards and did everything and they wanted to be an engineer and I I sold life insurance door to door <laughs> and uh, helped my father on the ranch there a few months later a guy asked me to go to work for him in the hearing aid business. I was born with a hearing loss, Okay, pretty severe. And I've had it my entire life and born hearing aid since right. I was five years old when they figured out that something was wrong with me. So I went to work for him and he trained me and I did the internship and all of that that you gotta do. And that's how I ended up in Uvalde was my, my first job out of college. So, so I ended up in the hearing aid business with an engineering degree. You never know where life's going to take you, right? You do not. You were at Texas A&M. It sounds like you didn't have much choice in that decision if, if your family went there before you. Well, I had a choice, but we did have a conversation. You know, my father, we're Methodist, and mm -hmm. so I didn't know anything about that. And I said, well, we're talking about school. And he said, you know, I said, well, what about SMU? I said, you know, we're <laughs> Methodist. And he said, no, son, you don't understand. And I said, well, what don't I understand? And he said, we're talking about A&M and Texas A&I, Texas Tech. Uh, San Marcos, UT if you have to, um, <laughs> but not 
SMU or Baylor or TCU or Trinity University. And I didn't know. I said, what's the difference? He said, well, twice as much money. They're private schools. I didn't know. Right. And so that, we did have that conversation, Trey. Gotcha, gotcha. So he would have let you put on some burnt orange if you had really wanted to. If I'd have felt compelled to do it <laughs> badly enough, he would have done right. it. He would have paid for well, it. Well, you graduated from a fine school, so you made a great choice. Now, did you meet your wife, Cheryl, at A&M or later? Oh, no, I didn't get married until I was 33 years old. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. So t tell me how you all met. We met at a dance in Uvalde. See, that's that's a good South Texas thing, yeah, right? She's from Hondo, which is about 40 miles to the west, east, excuse me, and we met at a dance. Did she ask you to dance? Uh, no. You <laughs> I asked her. Good, good, good to hear. And you've got two wonderful kids, Caitlin and Clayton. Let Correct. me let me ask you, when you say that real fast, do you, do you mix those up? All the time. Yeah. Did you think about that when you named them? We did not. <laughs> So what are they up to these days? Well, they're both in college. Caitlin's a senior at A&M. She's going to graduate in May. She's uh, just taking one class is all she needs, and she's working at a veterinarian clinic there. And then Clayton is a sophomore down here at St. Edwards on the south side of town, and he plays golf on their golf team. Oh, very Majoring good. in business. Good. You decided to run for the Texas House in 1992. Had you run for anything prior to that? No, sir. I had, other than the... Uh, deal with the library club in high school. <laughs> right. I had not. Oh, that's not true. I got admitted to A&M my freshman year, but I didn't get a dorm room. Back then it was first come, first serve, and I didn't get the dorm room. And so I went to the junior college in Uvalde for one year, lived in the dorm. When the dorm room came available in A&M, I went up there. But in the junior college, I ran for student senate. And that was the first real campaign I ever had. Shook hands with every single person that walked in and out of the student union building, got elected to that deal. Mm. And then, as life would have it, my first job was in Uvalde, a place I never thought that I would end up at. Right. Big rival for you, our Creasy Springs High School, in fact, in those days. So I did that in college. At A&M, I was on the, uh, I lived in a dorm at A&M, big dorm there, and I was uh, the treasurer on the dorm council there also a contested election. So after, 19, after the 1991 redistricting, we had a brand new district, no incumbent. And there were five of us ran. I led the runoff. I was the conservative Democrat in the race, mm -hmm. all Democrats. And I led the race with um, about, oh, 35, 38, 36, something like that. Right. And then the number two guy and the number three and the number four and the number five guy all ganged up on me. Uh -oh. and. Uh, the liberal Democrat in the race ended up winning the deal. There were about 76 boxes, and I got beat on the last one. Oh, wow. See, I could take that two different directions. I could see how that would be very deflating and make you think, well, I'm not going to do that again. But it didn't. I mean, you decided to run again in 1994. I did. I did. And I learned a lot in that first election. And talking about sending lambs to slaughter, right? We didn't know what we were doing. It just my wife and I and her sister working hard and volunteers, but no professional help at all. Mm -hmm. I Probably could have won that runoff if I'd have known then what I know now, sure. but I didn't. Two years later, he had uh, left the window open. He switched parties. Why, I don't know, but he did. So then we had a contested Democratic primary. The mayor of Uvalde was running, the Democratic committee man in that part of the world. I beat them without a runoff in the Democratic primary, and then um, I won the general election going away, 60% or so. So have you had, had many challenges or, or, or real challenges since then? Yes. After redistricting in 2001, the district that I represented in those days, which was similar to the one that I represent now, was completely 
decimated and disassembled. Mm. And fact is, Uvalde was moved out to West Texas, and I was paired with Pete Gallego. Pete and I talked about it, and at the time, Pete thought that, you know, if Laney got reelected speaker, well, then he was going to be chair of appropriations, and mm. so, which he probably would have been. So he was definitely running again. I moved down from Uvalde down south to Cruiser Springs and set up, did all the things you have to do to make your residency right. And I ran down there and, uh, in a completely reconfigured district with only about a third of my original and not my base mm. other than Cruiser Springs. But right. ended up in a pretty interesting race that I'll write a book about someday, but I lost that one in a runoff, also very, very close. And the people that beat me broke every rule there was Mm. They were the managers for the Kickapoo Lucky Eagle Casino, and eventually, it took a couple of years after that, but they all went to the federal penitentiary. Is that right? My opponent, his mother, his father, and I think maybe his brother. Now, based on what they did in that election or other things? Well, the election was part of the things that were used in terms of ethics and campaign violations, but the money that they stole from the Kickapoo tribe in order to run against me. Oh, wow. So have you started writing this book yet? No, I haven't. I need to before I forget the details. Was, I could sit here and tell you stories all day long about uh, what went on. It was a very G- interesting give us, campaign. Give us, give us one good story. No, a lot of it, a lot of it was uh, not on the record. You're going to save that for the book? Yeah. Don't want to spoil it? No, no, it's just, yeah. Well, let me know when you get started on this book. I can't, I can't wait to read it. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you. So I lost in 2001. No, in 2002, I lost that. Then I was out one term. And then in 2004, I ran again. And by then, they had all been fired from the casino, so they didn't have those monies. Mm -hmm. So he was just raising money as an incumbent. He raised a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But I beat him with 60% of the vote or so, something like that then. Beat him pretty badly. And then after that is when they got indicted and then sent to the federal penitentiary. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So do you think... I always feel like politics has gotten really ugly these days, but maybe that's just my perspective. Maybe it's always been ugly. I mean, the story that you're telling now seems to indicate it's always been ugly to some degree. Do you think it's gotten worse over time, better over time? State I don't think, I think it's, it, it's gotten worse to the extent that social media is involved mm-hmm. because people can disseminate a message so much more easily than they can, and there's no requirement to for any validity. Fact check. Yeah, right. and, and as time goes on, more and more people understand to take what they read on the internet with a grain of salt. That has certainly elevated the ugliness in campaigns, in my mm-hmm. personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Used to, you know, people at least had to take the trouble. The quickest way was a radio ad, but they still had to produce the thing and put their voice on it and all, or somebody's voice and pay for it. And think it through. And pay for it. Right, and then, that's right. You know, mail pieces, you have to print them and mail them. I mean, you got it. And they still do that stuff. But when you can just slap something on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think when, when Facebook started becoming big that it would be this great platform for discourse and good, honest, intelligent dialogue about issues. But it doesn't seem to be that way. It just seems to be the lowest common denominator to a large degree. In politics, it is, certainly. I think it has a great value for keeping up with your friends and family. No doubt. If it weren't for Facebook, I wouldn't know when anyone's birthday is. That's true. <laughs> for sure. As much as I'd love to just get off of it completely, and I can't now because i got to know when everybody's birthday is. Right. When you ran initially, were there some burning issues that motivated you and that you wanted to work on? Yes. When I ran um, in 92, there was a federal court order in place 
that required the state of Texas to develop some kind of plan to reduce the pumpage on the Edwards Aquifer. Mm. And Uvalde and Medina counties, which were in the Edwards region and also in my legislative district, were adamantly opposed to the Edwards Aquifer Authority creation. So I got elected for the, and that was the issue, was the Edwards Aquifer and, and our efforts to try and not be a part of that. And I was spectacularly unsuccessful in keeping <laughs> us out of it. And the bills passed and become law and Edwards Aquifer's out there today and they have done well with what I, I've always said was a legislation that had some flaws in it, I thought. You know, I would have set it up differently, but sure. it's actually worked out well because the people that work there have done a pretty good job with it. Right. Well, that's good. How have your passions changed over the years and evolved? Well, I'm still on natural resources, so I yeah. work on water issues all the time. You know, once you get to a certain historical knowledge, you think about doing something else, but you don't necessarily. Property rights issues were always big, and I was always on that. Looking out for rural interests has sort of always been my my carve out, my niche, my role here. Right. Last session, you were chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, which I'm sure that's big to your district it as well. It is. Three sessions I chaired that one. Right. And I chaired Border and International Affairs whenever Tom Craddock was speaker. And this time I'm chairing Licensing and Administrative Procedures, which is a really cool committee to be on. So uh, for the benefit of our audience, when you say licensing and administrative procedures, I suspect a lot of people hear that and think, I have no idea what that means. So, That's exactly right. <laughs> so would you explain to the audience what, what your committee is responsible for? Well, licensing and administrative procedures is a um, catch-all committee that a lot of different licensing programs, but the big ones that they, they have in there are um, anything to do with alcohol, beer, liquor, wine, any kind of beverage. Mm -hmm. Any gambling interest that the state of Texas has goes through there. Bingo, the lottery, all of that. Texas Real Estate Commission and all of their licensures. And then you have the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation, which licenses about eight or 900,000 people in the state of Texas now. Right. Any issues involving those licenses runs through this committee. And then a whole myriad of standalone agencies, you know, that, that might come through there. Your surveyors, your engineers, your accountants, it just goes on and on and on. Right, right. I know Governor Abbott has made an issue in the past year or two about reducing the number of licenses in the state of Texas. Uh, is that getting any traction? Do you see that happening in your committee this session? Well, certainly Sunset Commission, for you know the ones that review these agencies every 12 years, have, make a continuous effort. They're trying to consolidate a couple of them this time. Land surveyors and the engineers are being combined. And so there's those efforts out there. There are a number of bills introduced to do away with eliminate licensure in different areas where folks don't think it is. So there is a real movement to deregulate, unregulate, less regulate a lot of these professions. There sure is, Trey. Mm -hmm. And I guess I could argue both sides of that. I mean, obviously, you want your doctor to be licensed. You want your, your engineer who's building, you know, designing your, your house or your, your corporate building to be licensed. But I noticed a bill in your committee. Do we really need to license auctioneers? That is one bill that's in the committee. That's a valid question. <laughs> And I don't know enough about the, why there are licenses in the first place yet to know where we're going to go with that one. Um, if we have a hearing on that bill, and I suspect we will, right. then, then we'll get up to speed on that. The other one that's really big right now that generates hundreds of emails a day to our office 
and I suspect everybody that's on the committee, mm -hmm. one of the representatives has introduced a bill to, to deregulate and by that unlicensed uh, cosmetologists and barbers. Uh-oh. Hasn't that been a big fight in the past? It has been. Okay. It has so been. It's and it's back, in full huh? steam this time. <laughs> the cosmetologists and the barbers as a whole do not appear to be supportive of the bill. Mm. Well, that'll be fun. It will be. So, you know, you mentioned casinos, and that's a debate that's gone on for years, too. And I suspect the last polling I've seen, most Texans seem to be in favor of casino gambling in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, the devil's in the details, but nothing's ever passed the legislature and I personally don't expect that to change this session. Am no, I wrong? I don't, I don't think there's the appetite. You know, any fundamental change in gaming in the state of Texas, you know, currently you have bingo, the lottery, horse racing, dog racing, and you have the Kickapoo Lucky Eagle Casino in Eagle Pass, Texas, which mm. is one of the three recognized tribes in Texas. They have the ability to have class two gaming by virtue of some the way that they're part of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is different than the Cushada and the Tigua, right. which is why they can't do it legally. Those are the gaming that we have in Texas today that have been recognized, and each one of those requires a constitutional amendment. Gaming is illegal in the state of Texas unless the voters have said otherwise in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So in order to bring in casino gaming or class three type gaming facilities, you would have to have a constitutional amendment which requires in order to put it on the ballot, it does not require the governor to sign it, but it does require a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate. Right. So in the House, that's 100 votes. In the Senate, that's 21. The most I've ever seen in years past when they really, really put a big push on to get some type of additional gaming, they could get to about 85 or 90 votes in the House, <laughs> theoretically, depending on who's doing the counting. And so they couldn't get the, the votes in the House to put it on the ballot. Personally, I believe any gaming proposal that went to the voters would pass. Sure, absolutely. Well, and it seems like there are so many disparate interests, you know, even within the industry that it's hard for anybody to get on the same page to push in the same direction. Well, that's what right? happens a lot of times is that the casinos get to fighting each other, the horse racing guys mm. fight the casinos, et cetera. Right. Who's going to get a piece of the pie? Yeah. But even though a majority of the people would vote for it if it made it on the ballot, mm. two-thirds of them wouldn't. Interesting. And so, you know, in the Constitution, it says two-thirds of the legislature has to vote to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Right. Then only, obviously, only a majority of the people have to do it. While we can't get to two-thirds in the House and the Senate, it may be a reflection of the state of Texas there. That's interesting. Yeah, it probably is. As you mentioned, you deal with a lot of alcohol issues in your committee. And I did see a bill that's sitting in your committee right now about powdered alcohol. What exactly is that? I've never even heard of it. Well, it may continue to sit in that committee. Um, <laughs> okay. It was a big issue a number of years ago. Uh -huh. There was a real uproar. Somebody announced that they were going to start selling powdered alcohol. There was a big concern that people would be sneaking it into facilities that didn't allow alcohol mm. and, you know, just putting it in their bottle of water and all that kind of stuff. Because nobody sneaks alcohol into facilities where it's not allowed today. No, of course not. No. I mean, no, that didn't, didn't happen. That, yeah, not, not in Texas. <laughs> and so. Certainly not at football games. No. No. And so there was a big concern about that, that children would be able to get a hold of it sure. and, and overdose on it. So there was this huge furor about it a few years ago. Right. Then the whole issue just kind of went away, and nobody's selling it. I, I, that I can see there's not a market for it, and there's nobody actually producing it. And I'm told by the Texas Alcoholic and Beverage Commission that it's not just a little packet like, you, you know, you put that little packet that you buy at the convenience store to put in your water right. to flavor it. Right. It's, a, it's a big old 
you know, it's this big, a little baggy, and you got to put a lot of water and mix it up. It, okay. It's not that that, and it's not that good either, maybe. <laughs> but um, but this there's a bill in there to you know outlaw it and regulate it and all that, declare it as alcohol so that it's regulated by TABC. But at this point, it's kind of a non-issue, I think. Gotcha. Okay. Well, something that's not a non-issue, the Alcoholic Beverage Commission is, has been under sunset review. That bill is sitting in your committee. Obviously, that bill has to pass in order for TABC to continue its functions for the next decade or 12 years. I assume that bill will pass? Well, it, it, a bill will pass. And either TABC will be continued by virtue of a sunset bill mm -hmm. for another 12 years or if negotiated for six, maybe. Or it'll be caught up in the, in the what we call the safety net bill, which is where we put all of the agencies that they couldn't work out all their differences. They put them in the safety net bill, and that gives them another two years okay. till the next time. So it'll pass in some form or fashion. They're not going to sunset TABC. Right. But I'm cautiously optimistic that differing parties have worked out some of their concerns. And I'm, I'm, the author of the bill is optimistic that he'll get something done this session. Okay. So... So I had the, the distinct pleasure of visiting Garrison Brothers Distillery out near Fredericksburg last week and did a podcast interview with Dan Garrison, who I don't know if you've met him personally. He's not shy about his, about his opinions, but he has described and did describe the Alcoholic Beverage Code as being Byzantine which I had to look up that word, but in other words, a bit archaic, a little out of date, something that's been around since the Prohibition era and that hasn't really been cleaned up holistically since. Is there any effort to do that or is it fine the way it is? Well, first of all, it's a fine bourbon that they make. I've had it and it's <laughs> it, is. Uh, it is good bourbon. And the alcoholic and beverage code in terms of beer and wine and distilled spirits has been pretty much in the same form that it's in now, a four-tier system for distilled spirits, three-tier for beer, mm -hmm. for a long time. Right. And it is an outgrowth of prohibition. There have been incremental changes on it over the years. Mm -hmm. There have not been holistic changes in it or right. wholesale changes, but there have been some incremental changes. But it's been a very deliberate and thoughtful and moderate pace on those changes right. and I wouldn't expect that to change there's sure. there'll be a few little tweaks with the system now you know it's never fast enough for the people that want to change it and it's always too too fast for the folks that don't want to change it so mm. it's a good compromise point. Trey good point well and, and the other thing I've noticed over the years you know the legislature 10 years or so ago decided they wanted to help promote the Texas wine industry so the laws regarding wine were liberalized so today wineries can sell wine out of their winery seven days a week they can you can join a wine club and they can ship you wine and, and that's very much different from beer and very 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 different from distilled spirits yes it is so is there any effort to create some parity among there, those industries? there is an effort to create more opportunities for brewers and distillers to sell products on the retail level. There, that, there's a lot of talk about that, there sure is. 
and that jumps several tiers in the middle. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems to have worked out well for the wine industry, right? I mean, we have a booming wine in industry in Texas, and, and it would seem that if, if we loosened up the laws a little bit on beer and distilled spirits, it would help that industry grow in Texas as well more than it's already growing, or is, is that just an assumption on my part? Well, I, I think that, and this is the first time I've ever actually even served on the committee, much less chair it. And there's some pretty profound differences, I think, in the in the wine industry and the way that it's doing, the way that it's handled, and those other industries. And I'm, I can't necessarily sit here and give you a discourse on that right at this moment, mm -hmm. but there are some differences there. Gotcha. So beer to go from breweries, I saw that bill in your committee. Yes. Is that going to happen? Well, you know, I think that bill, I'm not sure. There's a lot of opposition to that bill. So you have two large beer distributor groups. Mm-hmm wholesale beer distributors, which is the one that's been around a long time, and they're very much opposed to the bill. And then you've got Beer, uh, beer Alliance beer Alliance in Houston, in the Houston, East Texas area. They did sign an agreement, which is pretty historic, with the Craft Beer Guild to allow more beer to go. But it's not still wholesale beer to go. They're going to allow them to do two cases of beer. But here's the thing is a brew pub. Do you know what a brew pub license is? Sure, but please explain to the yeah, audience because well, so, they probably don't. A brewery that produces up to 10,000 barrels a year can get a brew pub license, and that license allows them to brew beer, distribute their own beer, mm -hmm. and to sell their beer retail at their brewery. And they do that. And that is the vast majority of the people brewing beer fall in that category. Mm -hmm. And 10,000 barrels of beer, I'm told, is a lot of beer. When you Sounds do the like math it. on it, it sure. would be. Mm -hmm. And the average size of those breweries is, um, if I remember correctly, it was around 1,500 barrels right. a year. Right. So then once you get past that category, up to 125,000 barrels, I believe you can distribute your own beer if you want to do that. But you can't sell it retail anymore. And then over 125,000, you have you're basically have to have to behave the same way that Anheuser Busch does, or middle, sure. any of the big ones. Sure. And the proposal is to allow the folks that fall, or either don't want to get the brew pub license, or they're in that category between 10,000 and 125,000, which nobody is, by the way, that big in the state of Texas now. It allows them to sell two cases of beer per day per person retail. From their from their place is, is what the proposal is. That's going to benefit. I've heard different numbers, but just a, a small handful of the largest craft breweries. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it's always been my theory that if I could go to a brewery, or let, let's say a winery, or even Garrison Brothers, and and take a six pack or take a a bottle of of bourbon home with me and taste it, share it with my friends, decide I like it, I'm probably not traveling back to wherever that brewery was or winery or distillery to buy more. I'm going to my local retailer, which then ultimately benefits that retailer and the distributor who put that product in, in that retail space. It does. Right? So, it does. Okay. You know, those are always fascinating conversations and always complicated conversations. So I don't necessarily envy your position in having to deal with all those, but I'm sure you will do a good job of it. What else is exciting that's in your committee this session? Got a huge fight going on right now with the plumbers. The Plumbers Examination and Licensing Committee, the one that licenses plumbers in the mm -hmm. state of Texas and has for many, many years, has, uh, according to Sunset, has had some management issues in the last 12, 15, 18 years. 12 years ago when they were up for sunset, there were a number of recommendations made that they absolutely had to tend to. 
and in the subsequent 12 years, I'm told they haven't done basically any of them. And so the Sunset <laughs> Committee this time commission recommended that they be dissolved. Okay. Not their licensure, but they be dissolved and moved over to the Texas Department of Licensing, TDLR, which does a magnificent job dispensing licenses for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. There's 58,000 people that are licensed at the, the Plumbing Examination Board mm -hmm. by this board, and, and that may be 90,000 licenses because some people have multiple licenses. Okay. And they're not happy about it. And we had a long day of testimony yesterday from all the plumbers. With some mad they, plumbers, huh? They were, and I don't blame them, you know. They, and the big part of it is, is the bill is going to change some of the licensing structure. Moving to TDLR is, you know, that hurts their feelings a little bit, but they, mm -hmm. they get that because they know the issues with the, their agency. But the, the licensing and the, the name of the licensing is going to change. TDLR runs a very efficient ship. Right. And so they're concerned about that, as anybody is, anytime their profession changes. I mean, people, every time we've ever consolidated, it's rare for any group to say, please do away with my licensing agency <laughs> and merge me into these. That's right. That's right. That goes back to the cosmetologist barber conversation, right? Well, you know, for many, many, many years, you had separate agencies for barbers and cosmetologists. Right. And just making those two go together was a huge feat what, maybe 10 years That's ago? right, that's right. So you've been around the legislature for 20 plus years and, and over the past few episodes, we've been explaining to our audience about the sunset process and how that works. And that, that sunset in its essence means that the commission can decide not to continue an agency. Have you ever seen that happen? I've, I've only seen it one time and I think it might've been before my time even. Lore has it, legend has it, that the <laughs> dentist got sunset at one time. Interesting. Because they couldn't agree on a bill, and there wasn't a safety net. Somehow they didn't get into the safety net bill, or maybe they didn't have a safety net bill back in those days. Hmm. But were it not for the safety net bill, there would have been a number of them that got sunset because they couldn't agree on the sure. on the deal. But the safety net bill is just a broad sunset bill, and they can throw an agency in there that they hadn't been able to work out all the differences. But I've never seen them sunset an agency Truly, the dentists weren't sunsetted. There was issues with their agency, but they couldn't come to an agreement. I think the big fight between them and the dental hygienist or something, and that's why they didn't get a bill passed by the end of the session. Now, now this is just speculation. I don't know. So we had a bunch of rogue dentists running around for a while? Theoretically, but <laughs> I don't think that really happened, actually, right. which is cannon fodder for the folks that want to unregulate a bunch of people. But what has come out of the Sunset Commission process, and I've never been, a, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the process of Sunset, but what has done, I will tell you, is that even though they didn't sunset an agency, they did come up with lots of recommendations to streamline that efficiency right. of that agency and those types of things. So they do a lot of good work. They right. really do. Absolutely. Well, you would hope that is what ultimately comes out of that process is, is some streamlining and some improvement of how yeah. an agency works, right? Right. So that's a good thing. Well, uh, Chairman King, I would love to sit here and, and continue to talk about all these fascinating issues, but I know you got a busy schedule. We are about at the halfway point of this legislative session. How mm -hmm. do you feel things are going so far? I think it's going well. We've got a real experienced, dynamic team in, at, in the Speaker's office and, it's, of course, in the Speaker himself. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have a good process. Of course, the big issue this time is real meat and potatoes issues so far, right. for the most part, has been... Um, you know, property tax relief, 
in school finance. Right. And obviously everybody knows that reads the paper or anything. There's a competing, the plans are in the Senate and the House are different. I believe that before it's all over with, they'll come up with something that we can all vote for that will be a start on the road to improvement. That Good. School finance is so complex, you just, you'll never, ever probably solve it completely, but you need to keep chipping away at it. That's right. That's right. So I can go ahead and make vacation plans for June. There won't be a special session. Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm praying for. <laughs> well, I'm praying I for am, it, too. You know, the last time, after the last legislative session, you know, there's some summer conferences that we go to, and sometimes they're in places that aren't really that cool. Um, <laughs> last summer, they were in Boston and San Diego. Pretty cool places. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody that hadn't visited Boston, I've only been there once, and it was for a conference. You don't think about it as a destination, but it is a great place to go to. A lot of great history. Yes. And a good baseball team. If you and like absolutely. And we, a special session that was called, fell right on top of those conferences, and we all canceled our trips. Staff canceled their trips. The lobby canceled their trips. Nobody went on vacation that summer. <laughs> Hopefully we can avoid that scenario. I hope so. Well, Mr. Chairman, as you know, we like to close each episode of the Trey Blocker Show with some words of wisdom. And I understand you have some stuff to share well, with I, us. Well, I, I did. And, and it's not necessarily a, a quote or anything that Tracy King comes up with that's wise, because that's rare, that I, <laughs> almost unheard, unheard of. But I do have a, a poem that I like to read when I give speeches a lot of times in the district to different groups. And with your permission, I'll read this. Yes, sir. It's, it's uh, people are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, they will forget tomorrow. Mm. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough, but give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It never was between you and them anyway. Mm. Mother Teresa. Ah, that's wonderful. What a saint. Have you what heard that saint. before? I have not. I, I may need to get a copy of that from you. Yeah. Well, Chairman King, I appreciate you coming on the show. I hope you'll come back again soon. And I wish you the best of luck with the remaining of the legislative session. Thank you so much, Trey. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to The Trey Blocker Show. You can find us at TreyBlockerShow.com, YouTube, and your favorite podcast app. Thank you, and God bless. This has been The Trey Blocker Show. Please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. And visit TreyBlockerShow.com to donate so we can keep fighting to restore sanity to this great nation.